All right, remain standing if you would and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to pick up our text this morning in verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let, those, uh, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you administer it to our hearts this morning. Strengthen us as we come to it, Lord. Reveal to us the things that you desire to speak to us. And we give you all the praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Real quick before I start uh, teaching, I just want to make a little note about the Missions Mexico trip that we're doing. Uh, I need guys who have the ability to do construction work. We're going to do uh, we're going to take out a subfloor and put in some, a new subfloor and some flooring in, a, in a, a trailer, a building that they have down there. And uh, so if you have skills that you can do, even it doesn't mean that you had to be that you were doing it for a living, just that you have that kind of inclination to work with your hands and stuff. And you have a strong back and a weak mind so that I can abuse you. Uh, please sign up for the trip. Uh, and come on down there with us so that we can get this project done. All right. And if you're inclined that way uh, to check it out, come to the meeting today after the church, after church, 12 o'clock in the junior high high school room, which is down the end of the hall all the way to the end before you go out the door is the last door on the left-hand side there. Okay. That's now done and out of the way. Here we come now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The end of chapter four and the first half of chapter five are absolutely great words of encouragement to the church. They were intended to be. Paul shared them with those that were in Thessalonica that they would be built up and encouraged by the fact that the Lord is coming back for his church. We saw that last week as we were looking in chapter four. And as, as that was all given to us, he said that we are to be encouraged by this fact that Jesus is coming back and that he's going to take his bride out of here. But now in this section in chapter five, he's going to tell us how as the church, we should also rejoice that there is a day that is coming that we don't want to be here for. And the concluding verse there in verse 11, he makes it clear that we're not going to be here for it because it is a time when the wrath of God is going to be being poured out upon a sinful, wicked people who are Christ rejecting. This is not, you know, uh, something that, that the Lord takes lightly. It is that they're rejecting Christ and therefore sealing their eternity. And so Paul is going to give us those words of encouragement as the church as to what we are to do. Jesus Christ both unites and divides. Those who have trusted him as savior are united in Christ as God's children. And we are members of his body and all one in Christ Jesus. When Jesus Christ returns in the air, we shall be caught up together in 1 Thessalonians 4:17 never to be separated again. That's the, that's the goal of the rapture of the church is to be in the presence of the Lord, not to escape the time that we're going to talk about here today. Although, you know, there are certain things that we do that just have benefits that we really enjoy, right? 
And this is one of them. This is the, one of the benefits that, that God gives to us by belonging to him, trusting in him, and being carried away when he comes back for his church. Christ is also a divider. He, he unites, but he's also a divider. As a matter of fact, he says that about himself in John chapter 7, chapter 9, and chapter 10 in the gospel. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ not only unites us to other believers, it also separates us spiritually from the rest of the world. Jesus said, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world in John's gospel chapter 17 and verse 6 as Jesus was praying for his disciples including us even in this generation. There's a difference between believers who are looking for the Lord's return and the people of the world. It is this theme that Paul developed in this section of the scripture that we're looking at this morning. His purpose was to encourage the believers to live holy lives in the midst of their pagan surroundings. He did this by pointing out the contrast between believers and unbelievers in this section. So he starts out in verse one, but concerning the times and season and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. The Thessalonians were well taught about the return of Jesus and other prophetic matters. Paul taught them about the times and the seasons regarding the return of Jesus. And they had an idea of the prophetic times that they lived in and they could discern the seasons of that present culture. And just as it is that we are called to that as well. You know, some people struggle with the whole fact that Paul, he had, he firmly believed that the Lord would return and he would see his return. He really believed that Christ would come back for the church in his lifetime. Uh, and he lived with that urgency of the imminent return of Christ. And he points out that, that what, is, what it should do in a believer's life is that it should bring us to purity and holiness, realizing that the Lord could come back any day. And I always marvel at people who struggle with the fact that the Lord is coming back and they say, well, Paul believed that 2,000 years ago and Jesus still hasn't come back. Well, if you think that it's getting further away each day, you're sadly mistaken. It's getting closer and closer by the day. And the times and the seasons become more apparent to us in the times in which we live. You know, you look at what's going on in the world today. And I don't know about you, but I ask myself, Lord, how much longer can this go on? How, how much more evil can the world become before you say enough's enough? I've had my fill of it and we're done. There's an appointed day that the Lord is coming back. There's an appointed day that he's coming back for his church. And there's an appointed day that he's coming back to the world to judge the world. Be grateful for every day he doesn't come back. Because for every day he doesn't come back, that means there's somebody that you know that has an opportunity to come to Christ still. And we should have that kind of heart and that kind of mindset in regard to this. And that is, yes, it's been 2,000 years, but remember this, to the Lord himself, you know, 1,000 years is as one day. It's only been a couple of days in his mind. He's coming back and he's coming back very soon. And the world doesn't see it. The world goes on as if nothing is wrong. Everything is fine. Everything is just going along hunky-dory and we're gonna pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and everything is going to be fine. But yet the times and the seasons tell us this, that the days in which we're living in are the last days according to the scriptures and that Jesus is going to come back for his church according to the scriptures and that he's going to come back after a seven year period known as the tribulation according to the scriptures. God is faithful, he's faithful to his word and we have to understand that no matter what we may think, it's not going to change it. I'm grateful for all the time. I think about how if Christ would have come back in 1948 after Israel had be 
48, yeah, when Israel became a nation again, then I wouldn't be in the kingdom of God. Right? I wasn't born until 1953. I'm grateful for God's, you know, putting things off, or what appears to us as putting things off. All of his timing is perfect. Jesus criticized the religious leaders of his day because they could not discern the signs of, of the times, according to Matthew 16, 1 through 3. And we should also study the scriptures and look to the world around us so that so we can be aware of the times and the seasons that are going on. There's a great little video that we have. It's called The Coming uh, um, Convergence. And uh, it points to all the world events that are taking place right now that really point to the fact that we are in those days, that the Lord's return is just around the corner. Now, when I say that, I, I also understand that this has been one of the great hopes of the church for 2,000 years, living with that exp uh, expectancy that Christ is going to come back. It, it is what purifies the church. It is what clarifies the church, is this great expectation and this hope. So even if the Lord was to put it off for a new 2,000 years, it doesn't change the fact that he is coming back. And in that perfect timing, he will indeed do so. Hebert on the times and the seasons said that the first, the first times designates time in its duration, whether a long or short period. The second draws attention to the characteristics of the period. The first deals with the measurement of time, the second with the suitable and critical nature of that time. And certainly we see that in our day. This phrase is found only three times in the Bible and it refers primarily to God's plan for Israel. That is the way Daniel stated it when God gave him the understanding of the king's dream in Daniel 2 in verse 21. Our Lord's use of the phrase in Acts 1.17 indicates that times and seasons relate primarily to Israel. So it shouldn't surprise us because the last seven-year period in the history of man will deal with Israel. Not, not with the church. The church will be out of here and the Lord will be dealing with Israel. God has a definite plan for the nations of the world. We see that in Acts 17, 26, where it says, and he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined to pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And Israel is that key nation. According to A.T. Pearson, he used to say history is his story. And uh, certainly from our point of view, it is. Because we believe in Christ and we see God and we see his hand in the history of mankind totally. And so we can easily say it is his story, but it is quite a contrast to Napoleon's definition, which I, I found amazing. It is kind of what the world thinks today, too, is history is a set of lies agreed upon. And it gives you a good understanding why we see the revisionist movement within history uh, taking such a great hold. I mean, because they believe that, uh, you know, that those who recorded history originally were liars. And they did it from a skewed view, and so therefore that's why they put all those things in there. And so we have people literally rewriting history, being thousands of years away from it, but thinking they know better because they, they got it all figured out. It is his story, and it happens to be something that uh, the world gets to view. God has ordained times and seasons for the nations of the earth, and particularly Israel. And all this will culminate in a terrible time called the day of the Lord. And he speaks of that in verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. 
With this phrase, Paul quoted a familiar Old Testament idea. The idea behind the phrase, the day of the Lord, is that it is God's time. Man has his day, and the Lord has his day. In the ultimate sense, the day of the Lord is fulfilled when Jesus judges the earth and returns in his glory. In the Bible, the word day can refer to 24, a 24-hour period or to a longer time during which God accomplishes some special purpose. good example is found in the book of Genesis. In chapter 2, verse 3, the word means a 24-hour period, but... In Genesis 2.4, it describes an entire week of creation. So it helps us when we think of the day of the Lord, that it's not speaking of a particular day, but an actual period. It's a, a term for, for a period. Another term, another name for it is Jacob's trouble found in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. Many call it the tribulation and point to Revelation chapter 6 through 19 as the scripture that most uh, gives most validity and describes the event. The day of the Lord is a phrase that is found throughout the Old and the New Testament. And uh, I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of books. I'm not going to give you the addresses. There's so many that... Uh, you, you couldn't possibly keep up with it, so, but I do want to tell you about it, okay? Fact is that Isaiah has three different reference, uh, uh, four different references to the day of the Lord. Jeremiah uh, has one reference to the day of the Lord. Ezekiel chapters 13 and 30, two references. The book of Joel, it has um, about six references to the day of the Lord. Amos, another one, has two references to the day of the Lord. Obadiah, one. Zephaniah has two. Zechariah has one. And Malachi has one as well. So it is scattered throughout the major and minor prophets within the Old Testament. And all of them make reference to the day that is yet futuristic. And that is a time when the Lord is going to deal with a lost world. We find it in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 20, 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 5, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, and verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, but also in 2 Peter 3, 10, where he even makes that, he says that same thing, that that day will come as a thief in the night. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't like thieves. As a matter of fact, if I knew they were coming, I'd shoot them. And those of you who know me, you know that I'm not joking. It's true, I would. Except for I'd have to get them in my house because I'd go to jail. So, you know, we just had a guy break into our place the other day while we were out to dinner broke into our backyard, and uh, we saw him go in the yard, but we did never see him go out. So we were out to dinner when we saw this, and so when we came home, I'm thinking, ah, oh, he's probably left, you know, he probably scooted down the fence or something, I didn't see him. My wife would have none of it. She just bolts right out there in the backyard. I pity the fool that, that meets my wife when, when she's uh, on the war path, believe me. Long story short, we found the guy in our shed uh, covered up under a bunch of stuff trying to get warm. But I got to tell you, it bothers me. As a matter of fact, when I found him, I, I got really angry. And uh, I wanted to snatch him up and throw him out of the place. Uh, but uh, the Lord prevailed and gave me compassion for the guy who was freezing to death. He didn't have any shoes. And, I mean, just all this stuff. So, uh, you know, just like I do with any good thief, I just brought him into the house, invited him to get warm, you know. So I say that I'd shoot them, but I, I'm really not as tough as I act, you know. The problem is that if you knew that he was coming, I, matter of fact, now we locked the back gate, where before, you know, I just never bothered, now we do. I hate locks. I hate locking my house. I hate locking my gate. I, have, I hate having to lock my car up every time I get out of it. It drives me crazy. But because I know there are thieves that are out there, then I prepare 
And that's the thing. If you know a thief was coming, you'd take measures in order to prevent him from being able to get whatever stuff that you have. All right? And this is what it's talking about. It says that when the Lord's coming, it will be like a thief in a knife, when, in a night. Like when you least expect it. I didn't expect that clown to go in my backyard that night. Interrupted a good dinner, right? Then for the rest of the dinner, I'm going, what in the world do I do? I felt like getting up and leaving, going to my house. But I didn't, but you get my point. When it comes to a thief, if you knew, you would take measures. And the, the wonderful thing about God and his word is that he gives us fair warning. He tells us that this is going to happen and it's going to be sudden. It's going to be without expectation. You know, you may think, okay, I know that there's, there are thieves that are out there and they may choose my house to break in, but you don't know that for certain, right? Just like with this here. We do know that the Lord is coming back, but exactly when, we don't know. It will be all of a sudden, but then even with that, it says that he will come as a thief in the night and, uh, uh, and without that expectation. And he tells them that they know for sure about this already. That day comes, like I said, is quoted throughout the Old Testament. Paul has taught them about it. And he says to them, for you yourselves know perfectly that the Lord will come in that way. The Thessalonians knew and had been taught that they couldn't know the day of Jesus's return. And uh, there have been, throughout the history of the church, there have been those that have tried to predict the day when the Lord would come back for his church. And, and this is very significant because once we start in the, the tribulation period, which is marked by the Antichrist being raised up, signing a peace treaty with Israel, and then from that point on, for seven years, there's going to be the tribulation period. And at the end of that seven years, and Revelation lays it all out for us, that in the middle of it all, he's going to break that peace treaty and that there's still another three and a half years to go. And at the end of that three and a half years, the Lord's coming back. That is a predictable time period of the return of the Lord. Once we see that happen, but when it comes to the rapture of the church, there's nothing prophetically that keeps the Lord coming back for his church right now, today. And he could, and I hope he would on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm grateful that he hasn't. There's a lot of lost souls out there that we need to reach for Jesus. And it should give us that kind of urgency. Paul was not one to set dates in regard to prophecy. And Jesus forbade dates when it is said of that day and the hour that no one knows according to Matthew 24, 36. God wants this day to be unexpected, but he wants his people to be prepared for the unexpected. He used the image to warn believers not to be caught napping. Since we do not know when the Lord will return for his people, we must live in a constant attitude of watching and waiting. And while we are busy working and witnessing. So in other words, we have this, we know this is the future, but it's not so that we can sit on our laurels and do nothing, but instead that we realize by the, the time and the seasons that the time is passing away very quickly. The time that we have left in order to be able to minister to people's hearts and lives and to bring them to faith is getting shorter and shorter. That window is getting smaller all the time. But when we say in our heart, oh, where is his coming? You know, my grandmother said that the Lord was coming back and she's dead and buried. And he still hasn't come back. That's foolishness because we do not know that day, that time when he will return. When we can put these three concepts together and discover what Paul wanted to teach his friends there in Thessalonica. He had already told them about the coming Christ for his church. Last week we saw that in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 
He had told them that there would be a period of intense suffering and tribulation on the earth uh, following the rapture of the church. These times and seasons that relate to Israel and the nations do not apply to the church or affect the truth of the Lord's coming for the church. But he may come at any time and this will usher in the day of the Lord. In verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The unexpected nature of that day will be a tragedy for the unbeliever. They will be lulled to sleep by political and economic conditions, but they will be rudely awakened. They will hear the frightening verdict, they shall not escape from it. I think you, you would probably agree that it's easy to see that the world could be lulled into this false sense of security and peace and safety. All it's going to take is one leader, somebody who can demonstrate to them that he can bring peace in the world. Yeah, I think that that one will be the Antichrist. And when he does, the people are going to just rejoice. They're going to think, finally, the utopia that we always wanted. And I think that what's going to precede that just before that is the rapture of the church. And they're going to say, finally, the utopia that we always wanted. And now we don't have those bigoted Christians that are telling us what is right, what is wrong. We can do what we want. We can party, have a good time and all be free and safety. We know it's all going to happen. You can see the world being prepared for such a message as that. This sudden coming in a time when many say peace and safety must be distinct from the coming of Jesus described in Matthew 24, 15 through 35. The coming of Jesus described there in that section happens at a time of great global catastrophe when no one could possibly say peace and safety. Comparing passages like this show us that there must be in some way two aspects to Jesus' second coming. One aspect of his coming is at an unexpected hour. The other is positively predicted, like I had said. One coming is to a business as usual world. The other is to a world in cataclysm. One coming is meeting him in the air, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4. The other is him coming with the saints in judgment, according to Zechariah 14.5. As labor pains, and that speaks of the, that, that phrase labor uh, pains, suggests both inevitability and unexpectedness. Jesus used the same idea in Matthew 24, 8, when he spoke of the calamities preceding the end times as the beginning of sorrows, which is literally the beginning of labor pains. The idea is both of giving birth to a new age and implying an increase of intensity and frequency in these calamities. This illustration of like a woman who is you know, getting ready to give birth is a great one because when we see one of our dear ladies who is pregnant, there's that anticipation that builds, right? Throughout that nine months that we're all looking toward that and we're happy about it and there's a great expectation. And if it doesn't happen in that nine months, then we begin to be somewhat concerned. But we don't say, okay, forget it. I guess she's not going to have it. It just looks like it. It's a big joke when it's not. It's inevitable. It will happen. And that's what Paul is declaring here to us, that all of this will be visible. We will know it. We will see the times and the season, and we will know that it's coming, and it will happen. It's not going to just fade away. It's not something different. And, you know, the thing of it is, this was important enough to Paul that for this church, in the short period of time, anywhere from three to five weeks, whatever amount of time that he had with them, that he wanted to make sure that they knew and understood these things. 
And he taught them well because he told them, he said, as far as these things go, I don't need to tell you. I don't need to teach you these things because you already know. You see these things and you know. This is a reminder to them. Now, I've only had three to five weeks to spend with a group of people. I don't know that the rapture and, you know, the, the tribulation and all these things would have been top on my list. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what to do. And thank God that he did. Because it gives us this clear word about what it's going to be in the last days. What it's going to be like. And we are in that time and have been, to be honest with you, since the ascension of Christ to heaven. That began that time period of the last days. And there's a seven year period that's coming up that is the day of the Lord. It'll be that day when God pours out his judgment upon a Christ rejecting world. In verse 4, he says, but you, brethren, are not in the darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not uh, of the night nor of darkness. So in addressing their behavior, Paul first simply told the Thessalonian Christians that they should be who they are. God has made us sons of the light and sons of the day. The time when we were of the light or of the darkness is in the past. So now we simply have to live up to what God has made us. Before you came to Christ, you were a child of darkness. And you might think of yourself or you might even think of others as, well, they're not too bad. Well, not too bad isn't good enough. The fact is, is that the scriptures declare us all under sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some of us like really short of the glory of God. Some of us just a little short of the glory of God. But I guarantee you, we all fell short of the glory of God. And so does everybody else out there in the world. And unless they find Christ, they're destined for hell. There is, there's no other alternative. It either is that you're going to heaven or it is that you're going to go to hell. One or the other. Christians are sons of the light and therefore are not in the dark. And when it comes to future events, unbelievers ridicule the idea of Christ's return. But like I said, uh, in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, it says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after his own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Unfortunately, I, I can deal with that with people outside of the church, but unfortunately, I'm seeing it more and more within the church. More and more people who say that they belong to Christ, they love Christ, but yet they don't, their eschatology does not, eschatology is the study of last times. And their eschatology doesn't line up with what the scriptures say. And they, but yet they say they're believers. You know, the, the wonderful thing about God's grace that even if you don't believe in the rapture, if you know Christ is your savior, you get to go. And you'll be going, wait a minute, no, I don't believe in that. I don't want to go. No, you won't be doing that. I'm sorry, I, that was supposed to be funny. You'll be glad that you get to go. For over 20 centuries have come and gone since the Lord gave the promise of his return. And he has not returned yet. And this does not mean that God does not keep his promises. It simply means that God does not follow our calendar. He, is, he told them, he said, this day, the day of the Lord, should not overtake them as a thief. Paul means that this should not happen for the believer who lives according to their nature as a son of light and the son of the day. They will be ready for the return of Christ. In some respect, the coming of Jesus will be a surprise for everybody because no one knows the day or the hour. But for Christians who know the times and the seasons, it will not be a complete surprise. It should not shock us that we are nearing that time of the return of the Lord as we see the world events that are going on. Just very quickly, I just want to make a little statement here that oftentimes what I see now is Christians get so wrapped up of what's going on in the world in end times that they lose sight of the reason that 
this knowledge is given to us, that should give us an urgency to tell others about Jesus. Instead, we have Christians that are preparing for the end and stockpiling food and finding some place that when it goes to a one world currency, they're going to have something that they're going to be able to survive with and all these other things. And, and if that's your heart, then that's fine. But I'm just telling you this, that when it all comes down, it's not going to be what we think it is. And we will have missed opportunities that God has placed before us to simply focus on what is important. And that is the heart and souls and lives of people who are in the world. I remember when Y2K was coming close and everybody Everybody was stockpiling, man. I mean, they were building rooms on their house so they could store up food because, boy, when it came, all the computers were going to crash. Everything was going to, you know, go down the tubes. And uh, I actually, I asked a brother one time, I said, well, what are you going to do when that happens and your neighbor wants some food? He says, if he comes over to my house, I'll shoot him. I said, well, that's a good Christian thing to do. You know, store up food for yourself. You know, I gotta, I gotta protect my family. I gotta, I gotta, you know, make sure that my family has enough. Well, that's all fine and good, but the truth is, is that if we do something like that, it should be for the benefit of others and not for ourselves. You know, and it shows, it, it reflects our, our sense of priorities in life. It always should be God, family, church, others than ourselves. And if we have that kind of mindset and that heart, if you want to store up food and just be ready that when people don't have food, they're going to come to you and you're going to have to make a choice. And then your reserves are only going to last a short period of time because the need's going to be far greater than what you can possibly store. So consider just how important it is to you. I don't think it's wrong. I got a little beans and rice stored up. But mine's because I'm Scottish and I'm cheap and I want to buy it while it's cheap before the prices go up. But I'm not as cheap as Ted. He's Scottish and Jewish and so therefore he's got me beat. Those who are not in darkness who live as they are all sons of the light and sons of the day they are ready for the return of Jesus. Verse 6, therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Because we do not belong to the night or the darkness, our spiritual condition should never be marked by sleep. Spiritually speaking, we need to be active and aware to watch and be sober. Paul used a different word here uh, for sleep than what he had used in chapter 4 when it was speaking of death. The word sleep is here used metaphorically to denote indifference to spiritual realities on the part of believers. It is a different world than that in a word, excuse me, than that in chapter four. For the sleep of death that he uses there, it covers all sorts of moral and spiritual laxity and insensitivity in our lives. We do not want to be asleep. Sleep speaks of so much that belongs to the world and the others, but should not belong to Christians. Sleep speaks of ignorance, of insensibility, of no defense, and of inactivity. Sober doesn't mean humorless. It has in mind someone who knows the proper value of things and therefore doesn't get too excited about the things of this world. The person who lives their life for fun and entertainment isn't living a sober lifestyle. It doesn't mean that you can't have fun. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm all for having fun in life. But that should not be the thing that drives our life. That should not be the goal of our life. Our goal should be Christ and Him crucified and following after Him. And in doing that, we'll find 
those opportunities to where we can enjoy life. I believe the Lord does that in our life. So for those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, they're drunk at night. The opposite of spiritual watchfulness is spiritual sleep, and the opposite of spiritual sobriety is the spiritual, spiritually drunk. As Christians, we are of the day, and we must watch and be sober. When you look in Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul makes it very clear that to be, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the putting on of the breastplate of love and the helmet of salvation, Paul uses the images of a soldier's army to illustrate the idea of watchfulness in our own life. A soldier is a good example of someone who must watch and be sober, and he is equipped to do that with his armor. We are all called to be soldiers in the army of the Lord. Uh, and uh, we are all called to be prepared for battle. We're called to put on the armor. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, you find that Paul states it very clearly that we are to put on the armor of God. And there, there's, there's no, uh, you know, it's gender neutral. In other words, it's both for women and for men. This is how we are to be prepared. And the, the thing of it is, is that uh, we get ourselves in difficulties when we're not putting on the armor of God. And we find that the enemy is able to come in like a flood, that he's able to get to the vulnerabilities in our life because we haven't put up the defenses that God calls us to put up. And it's all about him. We find our armor in him. He gives us the armor. He equips us. He prepares us. And he uses those things in our life to keep us on the path that, that we need to be on. And here, Paul is making it very clear that we are to take these things on so that we are prepared in the battle. You know, we have our little God's man's boot camp thing going, and uh, we're really emphasizing that in the, in the group, that as men, that God, this is what God has called us to, to be prepared, to be fully armed, to do what God says in his word that we are to do as men. Now, uh, I'm not going to have a women's boot camp, so maybe Barbara will. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe not. Uh, anyways, <laughs> these are the things that we are to put on. Faith and hope, love. These are the things that, that equip us for the battle that we have. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that what, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So this is, uh, this is one of the most wonderful verses of promise that the Lord gives to us. Aside from that, that promise of, of salvation, he also promises us this, that we will never face the wrath of God. And it's because of the salvation that we have. Now, don't misunderstand, you know, misinterpret discipline from the Lord as being his wrath. If you're a child of God, I'll guarantee you, you're not experiencing his wrath. You don't, you don't even want to see his wrath. You don't want to know his wrath. And the promise is here in the word that you don't have to worry about. You're not going to. But, you know, so many of us have our parents and we've had children, and you understand this. That when you start out disciplining a child, sometimes, you know, it's a light discipline because you're wanting and hoping that they'll receive correction with a minimal amount of discipline in their life, both the training and the, the wonderful one, you know, giving the Board of Education to the seed of understanding. They're hoping that there's a minimum of that, that the child responds and will simply do. But what happens if they don't? Well, the discipline becomes a little bit firmer. And it becomes a little firmer if it continues. And it continues, then it gets somewhat drastic. As Katie, for 13 weeks, she didn't get to use the phone. And we lived out in the country, and uh, that it was brutal. 
that was overkill. I really regretted doing that one. You know, it hurt me more than it hurt her, I think, because of having to put up with her. My point being is that when it comes to the Lord, that he will discipline us as necessary, but you'll never face his wrath as a child of God. And always God wants us to respond. He wants us to respond to his discipline. He wants the world to respond to the invitation of the hope in Jesus Christ so that they will not experience his wrath. You have to know and to understand that the heart of God is that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. None. There's nothing about it. We saw that when we were going through Ezekiel chapter 18, I think it is, where God declares, he says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Now that's, that's contrary to me. When, when somebody's wicked and they get it, man, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm glad they got it. They deserved it. Until I think about that for a little bit and realize I'm the one that should get that too. I just escaped it. But the point is, is that God desires that all men would come to salvation, that none would perish, that none would see the wrath of God. But unfortunately, as we examine the scriptures, one of the things that we find is that that is inevitable. The people, even though God is going to bring all these different things on, on the mankind, all these different judgments, in essence, when you look at the book of Revelation, with each one, men stand up, they shake their fist at God and say, who are you to do this to us? Rather than to receive what God is intending, and that is to turn their heart toward him. He's, he's doing this in hopes that they will repent. But just like it was with Moses, God knows that even though all these judgments and bowls and everything else are going to come upon men, they're not going to repent. But believe me, on judgment day, they will not be able to stand before God and say, you never gave us an opportunity because God gave them opportunities over and over and over again. Here we see it's very clear and it's told to us that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us and whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Christ died for us so that we could have this wonderful relationship with God. Then Paul tells us in verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. A reminder that Paul gives to them. You know, first he tells them, he said, look, you don't have to worry about the wrath of God because you are protected because you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. He died for you. You're not going to have to suffer under the wrath of God. And he says, encourage one another with those words. And I think that it's good that we do that. And they were doing that, but it's good that we do too. When we see a brother or a sister who is struggling in their faith and their walk with Christ, we need to encourage them to get back into that fold and to continue to walk with the Lord and to receive the grace and the mercy of God and not boot them out. Unless they've done something, according to the scriptures, that necessitates that. But boy, it takes a lot to get yourself booted out. So we want to be those who are encouraging one another Oftentimes I find that it is more just the normal everyday things that we do, the frustrations with not being able to walk with Christ in the manner in which we desire. I don't know about you, but I really do want to walk with God in perfection. A problem that I had early on in my walk with Christ because when I couldn't do that, then I simply would walk away. And the Lord would draw me back until he finally got me to a point where I understood and could come to grips with the fact that I won't be perfect this side of heaven. And that God just wants me to keep walking with him and heading in that direction that, you know, I'm looking at the finish line. And I'm not saying that because I'm an old dude. I'm just talking about if you're walking with Christ today, your eyes should be on the finish line. Your, the finish line is being with him in glory. And whether that is today, tomorrow, or 100 years from now, if you live that long or whatever, that, that part doesn't matter. We have our eyes fixed upon the goal 
that we are in a marathon, that we're going to run that race to the end, and we're not going to give up. If we stumble, we're going to get up and we're going to go. Our job as fellow believers is to take those who stumble by the arms and lift them up and help them to get back in the race again so that they can finish the race and to finish well. And we do that under the power of the Holy Spirit. We do that as God's word is ministering into our hearts and our lives. And we are to encourage, to comfort one another, edify one another. And he says, just as you are doing. To edify means to build up. And when you have, when we have our first interest in building up other Christians, then God will edify us. The idea is of a church full of active participants and not passive spectators. There is no place in the church. There's no calling. There's no gifting. There's no spot in the body of Christ for a passive spectator. We might call that being a pew warmer or a seat warmer. That's not what God has called us to. He saved us for a purpose. And that is to be able to serve him and to serve the body of Christ and to serve those who are around him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that, Lord, as we have looked into it this morning, that we would see the encouragement that is offered to us there. That, Lord, truly you are coming for your church. That, Lord, that you're coming back to judge the world. But in, those, in, in that, Lord, that we don't have to worry about it, we will not see the wrath of God come upon us. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious promise, for the encouragement that it is. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another, to edify one another, to build one another up. Help us to be those that, Lord, come alongside and help. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. And uh, Lord, we commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Would you all stand, please? Now, I pray that this week that you have great opportunities to be able to edify one another, to build one another up, and to encourage one another in your walk of faith. Ask the Lord to do that in your life, and I'm sure that he will, and that he'll fill you with his Holy Spirit and with his word and give you a passion for the lost. Oh, how we need a passion for the lost. In Jesus' name.